Well, it's good to be with all of you again today. Um, man, thinking about storms. Last night, I took eight teenagers to a hibachi restaurant. <laughs> that was a storm, is what that was. And then I took them back to my house, and that was even more of a storm. So I'm glad to be here, daylight savings and all. You know, in some ways the morning couldn't get here fast enough, is what I'm saying. This week, um, we're going to be talking about waymaking. That's our topic, waymaking. And to set the stage, here's where, um, here's where we're at. Last Sunday, we began a new series here at Revolution on the Gospel of Luke called Fulfilled. And the big idea of this series is that Jesus didn't only come to the earth to show us how to die, and how to find resurrection, but to show us how to live. And in much the same way that Jesus brings fulfillment to this plan that God has been working out all along through all time, life with Jesus is intended to bring fulfillment to us. And not in the sense that we suddenly get everything that you want, of course, but in the sense that we move closer to living as true human beings people alive and the purposes that we were created for. And so last week, we kind of got this all started by looking at how the beginning of Jesus' story paves the way for this understanding through his lineage and through his birth in those first two chapters of Luke. And then this week, we're going to talk about the first stages of his ministry and how they can teach us and what they can teach us about following after him. And in particular, we're going to be looking at Luke 3 and 4. And there's a ton of stuff in Luke 3 and 4, a lot of which we're not going to be able to get to this morning. So I'm going to give you homework um, here on Daylight Savings Time Sunday, right here at the start. And the homework is this. Catch up, catch up with us in Luke. Catch up with us in Luke. Next week, we're going to be working on chapter 5. And so that gives you five chapters to read before then. That's one for each workday. You can make this happen. Consider it a challenge. Consider it a dare. I triple dog dare you to read Luke 1 through 5 by next Sunday. But on to this week. Like I said, our topic today is way making. And here's the illustration that we're going to use. And it comes in the form of a question. How do you make a winding road straight? How do you make a winding road straight? And I went down a rabbit hole on this this week because in an effort to answer the question, I did the kind of thing that I often do, which is I dug into something that probably wasn't the right thing to dig into. But nonetheless, what I chose to spend like forever researching was the Dwight D. Eisenhower Interstate Highway System. Yes, I thought if anybody knows anything about waymaking, it's got to be Dwight Eisenhower. I'm not sure what I was thinking there. But either way, in, in researching all this, I learned a ton of things and like billboards on the freeway. I'm going to tease you some of the highlights here. Um, the initial plan for the American interstate system was approved in the year 1956. And it was estimated to cost $25 billion and to be finished in 12 years. You guys know how that story ended up, right? It has so far cost well over $150 billion. And it turns out in 2023, it's still unfinished. It's still unfinished, and it's unfinished because of something that some of you might actually know about, especially if you're ever out in Pittsburgh. And the reason it's unfinished is because I-70 is discontinuous in the state of Pennsylvania because of a legal loophole that protects a little pit stop town called Breezewood. You ever been to Breezewood? That's the problem. That's the reason. Anyways, yes, Breezewood, Pennsylvania keeps the interstate system from being complete. 
Um, some other weird facts I learned. The shortest interstate in the United States. Do you know where it is? Yeah, it's right here. I-97 between Annapolis and Baltimore is the shortest interstate in the United States. And speaking of Baltimore, in Baltimore, the Harbor Tunnel is the lowest point in the interstate system at 107 feet below water. So think about that the next time you do that. You're as low as anybody on an interstate can be. Doesn't it feel that way, actually, when you're in Baltimore on the Harbor Tunnel? All right, I got more. I got a lot of these facts, but I'm not going to give them to you. So you got to look them up yourself. That's other homework. Because the point today, right, is to talk about the interstates, not in terms of facts about them, but in terms of how they're made, way made. Once upon a time, how did engineers, right, how did engineers take these thousands, you think it's well over 40,000 miles, uh, very curvy miles in many cases, how did they take these miles and prepare them for minimum four-lane highways of a six-degree grade? You know the answer to that question. It's a two-parter. First thing they did is they changed the routes. That was the easy thing, right? And the second thing is they leveled the terrain. So what routes did they change? Well, the rocky and the dangerous ones, right? The ones down into steep ravines in West Virginia and Tennessee or up over the Rocky Mountains in Colorado and Montana. They took less direct paths through high places and blasted tunnels into mountains. And then how did they level the roads? That's how they changed them. How did they level them? Well, they leveled them like you always do. You take dirt from the high places, you put it in the low ones. Now, none of that is easy, but it just was and is this. If you want to make travel, and if you want to make connection between places safer, you don't just redo the roads that are already there. You start with the earth. Now, here's where this goes for us. The very first thing, that Jesus does when he reaches adulthood is he goes to see his cousin John out in the wilderness. And we met John's parents last week in chapter 1, and here John is again as this hairy and scary adult. And what he's up to is this. He's preparing a way for the Messiah. And in doing so, he's participating in the story that God's been promising, the story that he's been constructing, we could say, in Israel for countless Generations, And that story is that God is going to use Israel to show the whole world who he is and how he loves us. And he's going to connect his chosen people to the nations around them. And it's a blessing for Israel to have been chosen for such a specific part. But in generation after generation, the Bible says that Israel has chosen the hard ways across the terrain. And instead of making wide boulevards for God to use, they've made windy, rocky paths that hide from God's bigger plan and ultimately sometimes serve their own interests, a bit like Breezewood, maybe. But at the beginning of chapter 3, this is what we get. It says, In the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. So you see the work here. 
John's not the Messiah himself, and making the pathway straight isn't the same as extending salvation or redemption. But the, the Holy Spirit, the text says, has come upon John to begin that earthwork that's going to lay the necessary foundation for the connecting work that Jesus is going to do between human beings and their God, and also the connecting work he's going to do between Israel and their neighbors. So, what does waymaking, if that's what John's up to, what does waymaking entail? Or filling valleys and laying mountains low is the metaphor that we're using. What is the metaphor for? Here's what the Holy Spirit gives John to say about that. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So John says that the first part is that laying mountains low part. And that that happens, at least in this passage, through repentance. The crowds that have come to see John have already taken some important steps on that path towards being a mountain laid low, that path towards repentance. They've paused their normal lives, which all of us know is like the first step of doing any of these kinds of things. They've gotten curious about whatever it is that John's up to out there by the river. And they've even come down to the river, the text says, to be baptized by him. So they're there, they took the pause, they went, they got curious, they went down, they got the right idea. But the idea that happens next, or this thing that happens next, is that it's just turned out to be just like laying out a plan for a new road, right? They, the people have sensed the need for the road, they've made a budget for the road, but you can't just slap asphalt down on rocky terrain and expect things to work out. John says that some amount of excavation is going to have to happen first. And that digging work, that excavating work, is repentance. So what can we learn about that here? Well, what we learn is that it includes a big dose of humility at the start. John anticipates that some of the Israelites who have come down to be baptized by him aren't actually looking to be transformed. What they're looking for is to be affirmed. They're already confident, right? They're already confident in their lineage as descendants of Abraham. And they feel entitled, some of the folks there feel entitled to God's blessing and God's use. Getting baptized for them is just a matter of formalizing in front of people what they already believe about themselves. I'll say that again because I think it actually sticks with me. Getting baptized for them is just a matter of formalizing in front of people what they already believe about themselves. But John says, in effect, that God, if he wants to, can choose to use anybody. He can choose to use rocks if he wants to. You're not entitled to be used by him. And so your group identity isn't enough. You've got to be willing to personally Recognize, well, your own arrogance. You've got to be willing to do excavation work. You've got to be willing to be a mountain laid low. And the reason for that, the reason you need to be willing to do all of that isn't because you're terrible. 
And it's not that you should feel terrible. The reason, just as in waymaking and road construction, is because the goal is to be made useful, to be made payable. Repentance prepares your heart and your life for God's connecting work. If you want to stay rocky, that's okay. You can stay rocky. But don't be surprised if in staying rocky, if that leads to disconnection and isolation in your life, because that's the natural consequence of being a rocky path. So that's the first part here. How does a person repent? Right? What do they do? Well, a person repents by acknowledging that they made patterns of choosing isolation and pride over connection and humility. And that realization happens internally. It's a heart question. But once you've done that heart work, if you're like me, sometimes you do heart work and then you wonder, like, was that legit? Did that, like, happen? Did it work? Did the work work? So how do you know? Well, that becomes a head question, right? And the good news here is that John says that repentance bears fruit that's in keeping with itself. And that means that you can look at your life and you can see if God is paving that metaphorical road and using you as a connector. Here's what John describes. What should we do then, the crowd asks. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. I like the even there. That seems really sarcastic. The even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? He tells them, don't collect any more than you are required to. And then there are soldiers. Some soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money. And don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. I think what's going on here is that the fruit of repentance is the filling up part in waymaking. I'm sorry about whatever's beeping. I'm not sure what's going on there. But fruit of repentance is that filling up part in waymaking. You take the low places and you add to them until they are level with the path. I think it's a natural generosity. You share shirts with those who have none. You don't cheat people. You don't exploit people or be dishonest with them. You try to be content with the things that you have. And when those behaviors, those leveling, filling up behaviors, become routine for you, that becomes a way that you can trust that repentance that you've done is actually going somewhere. Something's actually changing. Now, as I say all the time, I grew up in a very different church environment than the one that's here at Revolution. And the church culture I grew up in put a lot of stock in being mountains laid low. Put a lot of stock in repentance. And we talked often about not just feeling guilty, but acting on those feelings of guilt by coming down to the front of the church and praying for forgiveness. And I did that a lot growing up, like pretty routinely. We would come down to the front on a Sunday morning at the altar call. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but like the altar call, come down. Repent, got baptized a bunch, you know, got prayed over a bunch. I'm good, is what I'm saying. I'm like, I am I'm good. I'm sanctified. No, I'm not. But nonetheless, I did that a lot growing up. And there was a lot of good in that experience for me, honestly. I learned how to be sensitive to guilty feelings and how to process guilty feelings. That was good. 
I learned how to say that I was sorry, which has proven to be good in my life. I learned that God wanted holiness for me, and that if I'm left to my own devices, I'm not capable of keeping that up. And that was good. But the cost of being in a community that emphasized the laying low part of waymaking over the filling up part of waymaking was that I usually felt like after I told God I was sorry about stuff, I was done. That was the work. I didn't learn to look for the fruit of repentance in my life, and I wish that I had. And maybe that's a place that you've been too, right? You get that you make mistakes, and you know that it is good, and that it is right to confess those mistakes, own those mistakes. But do you stall out right there? Is that where you stop? Or do you become a person who fills up the lives of others just as much as you lay low your own? And if you don't, if you're not a fill-up person, then I feel like it's my job to push you a little bit this morning, right? And I'm going to push you like this. I'm going to say, maybe your repentance is still mostly about you. It's not about making a path straight for God to connect the hope that he offers to the people who need it. Now, maybe you do get both parts of what John is preaching. The humility and the generosity. You're, you're good. So what happens next? Well, remember that all the stuff John is doing in this passage is the earth work. He's not the paper. He's not the connector. That's the job for the person who comes after him. And here's what happens in the story. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now here's the thing, and I thought about this a lot because I think it's a particular temptation at a church like ours. I think it can be easy and tempting to boil Christian faith and practice down to just those two parts that we've been going over so far this morning. The laying low and the filling out. The repentance and the generosity. And here's the thing. If John was the Messiah, that's exactly how the story would go. Lay low, fill up, that's the Christian path. But John is clear that his baptism doesn't actually make that connection that we're actually here for between God and all of us. He doesn't make that happen. That work, that paving of the actual connection between us and God is going to require somebody else. It's going to require more than just humility and being nice to other people. And so after John says all of these things, and then in verses 21 through 22, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. And other versions of the story are clear that everyone there could hear it. And it said, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And I emphasize that thing about this voice, about people being able to hear it. Because Jesus is the one through whom the way opens. He's the one who connects the people there 
with Jesus and John at the Jordan River to the voice and the presence and even the physical manifestation of God. It's only through him that that earth work John's been doing becomes real connecting work between people and their God. It's only through him that all of that repentance and that good behavior stuff begins to mean something that has cosmic and eternal consequences. Now the crucial part of what Jesus accomplishes is the fulfillment of that long story that God has been telling through Israel. It's all right and good for the Israelites to put their own territories in order to smooth the hills, to abandon those rocky and those selfish paths, but a healthy Israel is meant to help others find health. That's God's heart and God's purpose for them. Israel gives Jesus' story an interpretive frame. In their long traditions of worship and sacrifice and repentance and forgiveness, in their example of covenant, what God intends to do through Jesus for the rest of the world finds its own illustration. Israel is us, and Jesus shows us how God comes to us to redeem us from brokenness and restore us to real and beautiful and full and connected life. Now we're having to pick and choose to this in chapter 4 this morning, hence the homework, right? But as we move towards closing, I want to highlight where Jesus' work begins to fulfill the work the Holy Spirit gave John to do at the beginning. And also, I want to talk for a minute about how, about what can short-circuit that fulfillment if we allow our own self-interest and our own fear to kind of harden our hearts about this process. So here's another section of this story. After being baptized, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, which is the whole thing, also very interesting. And then he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And the word about what has happened at his baptism, probably during that 40 days when he's wandering around elsewhere, that word's kind of percolated around the region. And so have these words about the first miracles that he's been performing. And so all that word has gone on ahead of him to his hometown of Nazareth, perhaps word actually traveling along the newly paved roads of the hearts of his early followers. And the people of Nazareth, when he gets there, are ready for him in the synagogue. And so Jesus goes in, and it says he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a crowd-pleasing verse that he's picked out of Isaiah. Everybody loves it. And it says that he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Things go so well for Jesus as he's here in the synagogue in Nazareth. He lays out who he is, right? He is that Messiah. He is the promised one of God who's there to set the oppressed free. And this is good news. This is the best possible news. Everybody there is excited to hear it. 
but Jesus has a pattern of actually doing this. Then he says something that makes everybody mad, right? So everybody's thrilled. He's there to set the oppressed free. And then he says this. And it always starts like this, too. Truly, I tell you. Be wary of truly, I tell you. He says, truly, I tell you, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his own time. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. After this, Luke reports that the crowd turns suddenly and angrily on Jesus. And these people that had cheered from just a minute ago, they force him to the edge of a cliff where they intend to throw him off to his death. So what on earth changed? The answer, of course, is in those two examples in the previous passage. Right on the heels of telling the people what he's there to do, that he's there to set the oppressed free, which makes everybody happy, he tells these two stories from the times of the prophets of Elijah and Elisha. And in these two stories, these two prophets meet the needs not of their Jewish brothers and sisters, but of their enemies. They perform Israel, they perform miracles for Israel's enemies. So why does everybody get mad? They get mad because the waymaker intends to make a way. The repentance, even the generosity they had displayed was only skin deep. They wanted God's freedom, but they wanted it for themselves. But that's not how interstates work. It's in the name, enter part of the name. The road that God is paving exists for the very purpose of reaching somewhere else. It's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to allow anger and to allow resentment to fester in us to the point of hating other people. And that's why Jesus is the center of the story. And it's why we need a real Messiah and not just better habits and better behaviors. Because our hearts, this text reveals, and the whole Gospels keep revealing, our hearts can't be trusted. Jesus exposes that in us. And then at the end of the story, he's going to offer to give us his own, if we'll take it. Now, that's a lot to reflect on this week. And so allow me to offer a summary and a challenge. The summary is this, that God wants us to make the path straight for him to move, and that we do that by repenting of our sin and giving generously to level the road for others. The challenge... Take a little step forward here. That was the summary. That was killed the momentum there. That's all right. That was the summary. Here's the challenge. The challenge is that that straight path that the repentance and the generosity levels, that straight path still has to be paved, which is the thing that Jesus does by going first, by setting an example, and by inviting us to accompany him, and then that straight path still has to be walked. It has to be traveled. 
I'm not sure where you're at this morning in this journey, right? Maybe you are on that repentance step, the laying low of the mountain step. And if that's where you are, then I invite you to talk with me or with somebody else this week about that. Maybe you're on the generosity step, right? And if so, my encouragement for you this week is to pray for the eyes that you need to see people who need their roads leveled in your life, who need the valleys filled up in their life. Help God, ask God to show them to you. Maybe you're on that acceptance step, the paving step, and you need to allow Jesus to do that, to pave that metaphorical road in your life and in your heart. And if that's where you're at, you're waiting on Jesus to show you a real way that you can trust, then please talk to me about that this week. Or maybe, maybe you've done all that and you're just on the walking step, the traveling step. And what you need are more friends who can come alongside you and keep you company on the drive. And if that's where you are, then this is a perfect week for you to jump in with a small group and to begin meeting some of those people who can travel the road with you. But wherever you are, whichever one of those steps that you are on, here is your hope, your anger. The anger is that God cares about you. God cares about you. He wants to connect with you. And he wants to forge new connections between you and other people that he loves. He's a connecting God. So the question is, do you see him? Do you trust him? I'll pray for us and then we'll receive communion this week.